All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys today. And it happened quick, came fast, um, and it is cold. And so <laughs> it's uh, sorry about um, those of you who missed fall. It was like yesterday. But besides that, we are good to go for a winter. We're Chicagoans, and it's going to be great. So, um, guys, we are here today, and it is a good, uh, good weekend. Again, a lot um, happening, a lot going on, as Erica said. Uh, but we implore you and we encourage you to participate in as much as possible. Um, just because church happens, again, we work, come together to worship God on a Sunday morning. Um, but what we try to encourage here in this uh, place is community, biblical fellowship, which is literally defined as a shared life a shared life in Jesus Christ. And so to do that, it takes uh, multiple things. It takes uh, time. It takes opportunity. Um, it takes relating outside of uh, just being in direct proximity with people. And it actually um, effectively um, enables us to grow in the grace of God as we open up our lives to one another. So we encourage you to um, participate even outside of a Sunday morning, but we are so glad uh, that you are here today. So if I haven't met you yet, my my name is Roland. I'm the pastor here, and we are um, going through a series called Grow. And if you haven't been with us yet, uh, what this series is covering is uh, a book in uh, um, a book called Philippians in the Bible, which I'll um, explain in a minute. But uh, what we're doing is we're trying to keep up with God in all that he's doing. Was everybody encouraged by the several <clears throat> baptisms that took place last week and all the people getting baptized in the Lord? Isn't that exciting? Yeah. Well, okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Pitter pat, pitter pat. I mean, when we say baptism, there should be a roar. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's sort of like, yes, new life and new commitments to Jesus Christ. And so, um, I'm going to try that one more time. Was everybody excited about the baptisms last week? Yes! Yes. Okay, that's why we're here. So, um, guys, we are going, as I said, through the uh, book of Philippians, which um, if you're not really familiar with the Bible, what we do is we esteem the Word of God in this place. And we esteem the Word of God because uh, even many of you are familiar with uh, the book of the Psalms, which were songs that were written to God, authored by the Holy Spirit, and giving inspiration to not only who God is, but how we should come before him in worship. And Psalm 138, too, um, actually said this in particular. He said, for God has exalted above all things his name and his word, meaning that he's made more important than anything else, his name and his word, meaning the name of Jesus, his reputation, all that comes with that, and also his word, which shows us how to interact with him and function with him as the people of God on a daily basis. And so Philippians, again, authored by the Apostle Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament letters, was a book that was written in his first Roman imprisonment. What we see is that Paul was um, a preacher of the gospel in the of a culture and a community that was um, much like our own, but it had some differences, obviously, because we're benefiting from all that Paul and the other apostles did in proclaiming the good news of Jesus and spreading it throughout the known world. But what we saw was that Paul was writing this letter in his first Roman imprisonment, and what he was doing is he was trying to explain to the Christians who remained on the outside how to live for Jesus in the midst of a culture that doesn't necessarily honor and submit to 
to him. And so we see that his intention was continually, as we see through the themes of the scripture, that the Christians should not only have a work that starts in them by the Holy Spirit, but they should, they should be intent on seeing the work that God started in them grow and reach completion until the day that Jesus comes and meets us again, either in his physical return or when we meet him in our own demise, in our own falling asleep and then inevitable resurrection and judgment before him. And so Paul's describing these things here. And Philippi was a city a little bit like Chicago. It was actually the church that Paul in his second um, missionary journey he started. Um, and it, many people think that it was the one of the first churches that were started in modern day Europe. It was actually in Greece and it was um, a city uh, that was previously uh, conquered by Philip of Macedon. And so if you've heard of the region before Macedonia. This city was a um, part of that region of Macedonia. And if you've ever read through the book of Acts and followed the early development of the church, when Paul got a call to go to Macedonia in a dream, this was one of the cities that he went to. And it was an important city because it was um, actually set in the middle of the Roman colony on the Ignatius Way, where trade was going on from east to west. And so you constantly had people going along that trade route, trading and doing their business and then going throughout the Roman colonies. And whenever they were reached with the gospel in this city of Philippi, not only could they be a church that was established in that city, but they could also take the gospel wherever they found themselves going as they continued their commerce and business. And if that doesn't sound like Chicago, I don't know what does, right? People coming through, passing through, getting a touch from Jesus, then getting a job somewhere else and taking the good news of Jesus with them. Amen? Okay, so this is very practical for us. Okay, so we're going to get into Philippians chapter 3 today, and we're going to talk about two things, continuing this uh, motif of grow, and we're going to talk about growing in, number one, Christ-centered identity, and then number two, growing in the call of God. So again, if you're taking notes, we're talking today, Philippians chapter 3, growing in Christ-centered identity, and number 2, growing in the call of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your good news to us today. We thank you that Jesus Christ is not just a historic figure, but he's alive today. He rules and reigns, and that he is the head over not just Second City Church, but the church in the earth. And God, we're asking that even as we study your word today, that you would help us as individuals and a congregation to grow into all that you've called us to be, with our minds and hearts fixed on who you are, that we might leave behind the ways and the, the encumbrances of the world and be liberated into the freedom of Christ through this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1 today. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Now, we could just like preach a whole message on that because that is Christianity 101, is it not? He says, listen, it is, I want you, number one, rejoice in the Lord. There's something for you to rejoice about that regardless of your troubles, your circumstances, and your issues today, there is an eternal hope that we have in the resurrected Christ. And regardless of our circumstance, regardless of our situations, we can rejoice always. 
and Paul saying, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you over and over again. Peter said the same thing in one of his pastoral letters to the church. He says, listen, I'm writing these things to you, not because you're not aware of them. This is what even John the Apostle said too, but because you do know the truth, it's in you and you need to remain in it. And sometimes, especially if you've grown up in the church, it is easy to check out on the things that you've heard before because you have a knee-jerk reaction where you're like, oh, I know that. I know the gospel. I know about the cross. I know about his resurrection. I know about his blood. But the truth of the matter is twofold. That number one, we don't actually know what we think that we know until we're actually able to live it and articulate it. Number one. And then number two, that you need a constant refreshing in the gospel. And what I mean by constant is a daily refreshing in the gospel. You need to preach this good news to yourself day by day by day. Because how many people know that you're having all types of alternative messages being preached to you, whether overtly or subversively on a daily basis, trying to take you away from the truth and the hope that he has for you. So when he's saying it's no trouble for me to remind you of these things over and over again, and it's safe for you, it's for this very reason. But he goes on and says this. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence, absolutely no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So whenever Paul's talking here, he's saying, number one, not only is there good news in this gospel, but there is an understanding, there's a context to the people that he's writing to. The people that he's writing to, though they might have uh, been pagan initially, they are all of a sudden growing up in the matters of God. They're growing up in the grace of Christ. And there's a familiarity with the law of God. God says, I'm giving you my word, I'm giving you my law, showing you how to live as believers, right? Many people, if 
if you've grown up in church before, you're familiar Old Testament-wise with the Ten Commandments, right? You honor your father and mother. You'll have no gods before me. You know, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Thanks for being here today and worshiping the Lord. Amen. Okay, it's like all of these different things. God's saying, this is how you walk with me. This is how you reflect me, honor me, know me, and love me. And Paul was not just any religious person. Paul was what he said in his pedigree, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Whenever we see that we are Christian, whenever we say rather that we're Christian people, we've got to understand that our Christianity had its roots in the Jewish faith. And so everything that we're doing in worshiping Jesus is a fulfillment of all that was promised in the law and the prophets that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul is saying, I've got this pedigree about myself, not only am I a religious, but I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He studied under, he was a Pharisee, which were at the time of his writing, the people's champions. Not only were they religious, but they were the teachers of the law to the common people saying, hey, listen, if you want to follow God, we're the zealots. We're the ones who are setting the way, setting the example. You follow me. And Paul's saying, I was one of those people, the Pharisees. I was not only a Pharisee, but I was instructed by this man named Gamaliel. I was instructed by this man named Gamaliel, who at the time was one of the top theologians of his day, right? It's almost like people are familiar in the Christian circles with certain sort of Christian celebrity names, right? How many people have heard of Francis Chan before? Okay. How many people have heard of Bill Johnson before? Okay. How many people have heard of Tim Keller before? Okay, all of these different people, like they're celebrity names in the Christian world, right? That's like Paul saying, hey, listen, I'm not only a Christian. I'm a Christian of Christians. I studied under Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, baby. That's right. And I can be the apologist of apologists, giving an answer to the world as it needs today. This is what Paul's saying. My pedigree is running strong and deep. But whatever I used to count to my prophet." Whatever I used to put confidence in, I need you to understand that I'm counting as rubbish for the sake of actually knowing Jesus. For the sake of actually being found in him and having a resurrection or even you could say a spiritual, I'm sorry, a righteousness, a spiritual resume, not of your own making, but that solely depends on your relationship to him. And it is so easy whenever you've grown up in the church. It is so easy when you've begun to develop accolades for yourself in our modern world to put your um, trust and identity in anything other than your relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm saying that whether or not you're doing that spiritually or if you're doing that in the way that you live in the world, right? Because we all have certain pursuits that are driving us on a daily basis. We, though we might not be like the Apostle Paul, might be able to say the same thing. People might say, oh, I was born into such and such family. As many times people, depending on where you come from, like to name drop, right? The, I'm from this family and my last name means something in the town that I come from. Or you might talk about the school that you went to, right? The pedigree. Well, I went to the University of Chicago, number three in the nation. Or I went to Northwestern University, number eight in the world, right? Or I went to Harvard, right? And then all of these different things that you have about yourself, you're encouraging yourself and it gives you a sense of 
of value and importance because you're comparing yourself to the rest of the world, right? Or you might look at your bank account. You might say, well, I'm financially independent at the age of 35. You know, and it's like, well, good for you. Share and share alike. You know, but the point is, is that in the midst of it, you might say that I have confidence in all the things that I've been able to accomplish for myself. But in doing that, we've got to understand that there is only so much place in our heart that we can have for the space that makes and shapes our identity. The things that make and shape our identity could even extend to the things that you think you're talented at. What do you think you're gifted at? What are the things that when you describe yourself and you'll know what you find identity in because whenever you meet somebody, you initially bring that thing up before anything else, right? And in our culture, what often happens is like you give your name and then immediately the question that people ask is what? What do you do, right? What's your name and what do you do? If you're here in this city, where do you work? If you're somewhere finding out, you know I mean, where to like live in the city, it's like, where do you live? All of these things are identifiers where people try to find an identity outside of Christ. And it comes out of the overflow of our hearts. But what Paul's saying here is that ultimately the identity that Jesus has for you is one that has nothing to do with what you can develop for yourself and it has everything to do with who he is. Paul's saying, even though I could have counted all of these accolades as my own, as my own, I'm not going to fall into the bondage of these things. But I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings and the ability of being able to identify with not only his sufferings, but his resurrection from the dead. Meaning that what? You die to one thing, you die to one identity that could, though good, have held you bound before. And you're coming alive to something else, the freedom of God that's in him. Because it has everything to do with his perfection, not my own shortcomings. His, his accolades and not my own in terms of trying to compete with those around me. Isn't it a glorious thing whenever you could actually be found in Christ and actually have your value and significance come from the fact that you're loved by him, called and chosen by him, and anything that you have to your credit or your name is only a tool that you use in service to the world that he's coming to reach and redeem. Whereas when you're trying to identify yourself with things outside of Christ, it actually becomes bondage to you. It becomes a rat race, right? You're always going to the next step. How many, how, how much can I have, right? I remember like they, there was an interview, an old interview with J.D. Rockefeller and people, obviously the old, old oil magnet, and they, people would ask him, how much money is money enough? And he would answer this way. He would say, a little bit more. That was his answer. In our, in our world today, he would have been a multi-multi-billionaire, Right? He would have been like Jeff Bezos, right? Anybody, anybody else praying for Amazon to come to Chicago? HQ2? Okay, anyway. But the point is, it's like he would have been like him, right? Saying, I've got multi-billions, multi-billions, more money than I could ever spend. But there's something in my heart that says it's still not enough. 
It's still not enough. How much is enough? He said, a little bit more. And if you have something that's identifying you outside of Christ, then it's never going to be enough, the thing that you can do for yourself. It's always going to be, find your rest and your trust in me. The righteousness that comes not of your own making, but that which comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, we're going to die and stand before God one day. And we're going to give an account for each and every one of our lives. And in that moment, he is not going to be impressed by anything that we've accomplished outside of him. He's going to say, did you love my son? Did you submit to his ways? And did you serve the world with what I entrusted to you? If we can say yes, then he's saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy your master's happiness. If no then not only do all the things that we've built for ourselves burn up, but we get to continue in the torment of being identified outside of Christ in hell, trying to still, without God, find the joy, the peace, the hope, all the fruit of the Spirit that was ultimately offered in him. And so the question becomes, in our modern context, not are you a good comparison to the Apostle Paul, but what is it that's identified you up to this point? What is it that you find your identity in? Recently, I actually, uh, I don't know if anybody like, has watched the news and uh, heard about the Equifax breach. Anybody cons- heard about the Equifax breach? Okay, yeah, you might want to get some identity, identity theft protection. Okay, um, the reason being that uh, I, I sort of shrugged it off at first, but of all the people, I was just like, let me, let me just do my due diligence. Of all the people who could have gotten their identity stolen, one of my kids got their identity stolen. One of my kids. <laughs> and so, like, I've been going through this rigorous process now you know, going, sending all of my information, well, actually their information to TransUnion, to Equifax, right? To all these things because their credit cards open for them, their bank accounts open for them. They're spending, baby, spending. I'm like, listen, they only got a job. <laughs> it's like, how, how are they doing this? But it's a rigorous process, right? Has anyone else ever gotten their identity stolen before? Identity theft or family members, friends? Okay, hopefully, God bless you, hopefully not. I think this was just for this message, okay? But the point is, is that there's a rigorous process that you have to go through for them to submit your social security number, your transaction histories, you've got to give proof of where you live, your address, and all of this. And then after they go through this rigorous process of unearthing whether or not it's actually you making these transactions, right? then they can possibly not hold you liable for all that's been done. Good news, right? This is often what happens with our identity in our everyday experience, though, right? There's like an identity theft. We start off with Jesus. Yeah, I love him. He's my everything. We sing songs, worship songs. He's in my world. You are my God. And I lay down my life for you. Anybody? Hillsong? All right. So <clears throat> the point is we start there, but over the course of time, then our identity gets stolen, right? There's a subtle shift in our thinking. Though it might have started in Christ, 
you work long enough hours and your world becomes your job. Isn't that right? It's sort of like you, you put in enough effort and you're like, the thing that's going to define me is this promotion that I'm about to get. And what we've got to do to make sure we're living in the same mentality that Christ was, um, that Paul was talking about in Christ is actually do a rigorous survey of our own hearts and our own interactions. What is it that's been identifying you? Is it your career? Not a bad thing, a good thing, just like all the things that Paul listed. But has it become too important in your life and your mentality, so much so that every decision that you make, even at the expense of your natural family and your spiritual family, is your career? Is it something like, if you have a family, your spouse? Has your spouse come to identify you more than the person of Jesus? Or if, not, you're, if you're not only married, but you've started to have kids, how about this? Is it your kids? Are your kids now identifying you, and are they your reason for being more than Jesus himself? This is why so many married couples, right, when they are empty nesters, what happens? They begin to bicker and fight because of the fact that up until that point of becoming an empty nester, their world wasn't each other. Their world wasn't necessarily Jesus. It was those kids that they were raising. And so because they were identified so much by these little people that they were investing so much into, when they're taken away, they've got to almost reinvent themselves and figure out who they are again. The question is, is that identifying you today outside of Jesus? Is it your financial stability? Come on, Chicago. Is it your looks? The Bible says charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. That's right. It goes away. No matter how much Botox. Listen, it will go away. <laughs> but it says a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised, who's found in Christ. You need to be able to stand in love for the Lord if any of these things were taken from you because they can be. What cannot be taken or shaken is the love the Lord has for you and your inheritance in him as you build your identity in the eternal redemptive narrative of the gospel. This is what Paul was describing here. He says, I'm going to stand before God one day and I don't want to stand with all the castles, the glass castles I've built for myself. I want to stand in Christ and the power of his resurrection actually being seen in his righteousness, meaning that I don't have a right standing with God on my own, but only based on what Jesus has done for me. That means his perfect life is my record. Why? Because I'm covered and submitted to him. His sacrifice is my glory. Why? Not because I've done it on my own, but because he and his grace did it for me. Paul says, I want his righteousness, not my own, because ultimately I know far too often, no matter how many accolades I have, I fall short. Can anybody say amen to that? We all fall short, but his righteousness is perfect. His righteousness is the one that we need to stand in before God, but we need to get our identity back. And once we get our identity back, then we'll actually know what we're called to do, right? 
You're not called to just be part of a rat race. You're not just called to make it, right? Anybody watch CNBC? They have their little skits, making it, you know, make it. All right. Anyway, the point is, it's not just about you making it. You're about God's eternal kingdom purposes. And when you have your identity fixed correctly in him, <clears throat> excuse me, then you can go on to the call that he has for you. Paul says, listen, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering so that by any possible means I may attain from the resurrection of the dead. But then he continues on in Philippians 3, starting at verse 12. He says, listen, <laughs> and, and I love this because this was Paul. This was Paul talking. It wasn't just like dude down the street, you know, who just decided to open his Bible one day. This was the Apostle Paul, used by the Holy Spirit to write three-fourths of the New Testament letters, go throughout the Roman world, starting churches where they were, there were no churches before. Matter of fact, in this city of Philippi, as I said before, they, he had to actually go down to the water to a place of prayer and meet a woman named Lydia and her companions, who she herself was involved in the marketplace. And at the place of prayer, he said that he shared the good news with Lydia and her companions, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to his message, meaning that she responded to Jesus. And then she, even though there was no synagogue that they could start in, and he could begin to preach this good news, Lydia invited her, I'm sorry, Paul and his companions to the, her home. And there they started one of the first house churches in that city. And there it began to spread as more people came to Jesus and more people came to know him. But this was Paul who was writing this letter, who was a zealot of zealots for God. When he talked about being a persecutor of the church, that means before he was a Christian, before Jesus made himself known to him on the road to arrest more Christians, he was zealous to imprison them because he thought they were preaching something other than the Old Testament scriptures, talking about some sort of um, additional sect, additional cult, you know what I mean, that wasn't approved by the Judaic faith. But Paul said, listen, I'm this zealot of zealots who actually met Jesus, and even though I'm preaching all these things to you, I'm telling you not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, I like that humility, right? Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect. I mean, we, we already cross out a lot of times like trying to compare ourselves to Jesus because he is perfect, right? We're just like Jesus, grace. But sometimes, anybody ever get in their mind, but well, maybe I could be like Paul. Or maybe I could be like King David. Or maybe I could be like Ruth, right? Okay, well, maybe not. Okay. Paul, even in his humility, says, not that I've already obtained this or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so what Paul's saying is he's basically doing a juxtaposition. He's saying (coughs) where naturally I could have been identified by all of these other things, I now want to be identified by Christ and being about his business. It does not mean that I don't do these other things because even Paul in his missionary journeys, he was also known as a tent maker, meaning he had a side profession as a tent maker where when the finances weren't coming in from the church to support his ministry, he had a skill, he had a trade that he did to support himself and his traveling companions. And he continued to do this so that the work of God could go forward. He's like, nothing is going to stop the work of God. And so he did these things, and he's saying all of these things must be done for the ongoing living and operation of daily life, right? We all have responsibility. But at the same time, the call of God, after you get your identity solidified in him, the call of God needs to shape that which you're doing in the midst of your responsibilities, in the midst of your responsibilities. Because he's saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. If we think, though, back to the sufferings of Christ, what were the sufferings of Christ about? The sufferings of Christ were that what? He was God of God, part of the triune package, who came and humbled himself, clothing himself, becoming incarnate in flesh, in hum- and clothing himself with humanity, and coming and walking amongst the people who did not love him, know him, or fear him. And he came working signs, wonders, and miracles, preaching the good news of the gospel, turning people who did not know him back to God, reconciling a lost and fallen world to a perfect and a holy God in the midst of, for the first 30 years of his life, carpentry or stonemasonry, right? Everybody ever wonder what Jesus did up to the point that he actually went and got baptized? He worked alongside of his father, his, his, half, right, his, his, his natural father, meaning he was born of the Holy Spirit, but he had Joseph, right, who taught him a trade. And in the midst of that trade, he was working, he was living perfectly according to the commandments of God. And how many people know that takes some suffering? And he was doing that all in preparation to one day show his glory to the world, make himself known, and reach the lost. He said, my mission and my suffering for the rest of my days in the midst of all that I'm doing and all who come after me is not only to glorify my father through my obedience, but to glorify him by making him known. And in the midst of that, he says, listen, I want to, Paul's saying, I want to know Christ in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, not only obedience to him, but in the midst of my daily responsibilities, seeing that this king, his kingdom comes, His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. When he taught his disciples to pray, is that not what he taught them to pray? The disciples were saying, Jesus, we want to know, how do we pray appropriately to the Father? 
How do we pray? And everybody remembers what grandma taught you, right? Our Father, who art in heaven. Come on now, we can be liturgical. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we also forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then they add on, depending on your denomination, for thine is the kingdom, power, and glory, for never Amen. Okay, but the point is, the point is, that's what he's saying. He, that was his sufferings, right? He came down, humbled himself, and said, I'm on mission. He humbled himself and said, I'm not only sharing in the fellowship of my Father and the Holy Spirit, but I'm sharing in the fellowship of my creation. And making myself known to them. And Lord knows that comes with some suffering. But Paul's saying, if I want to be found in Christ and actually be found in his suffering so that I might somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead, that means I've got to die first. Unless he comes and takes you and calls you to be with him. Come on, Elijah and Enoch. Okay, but the point is, he says, listen, you've got to die to yourself that you might live to him. Isn't that the power of the cross? He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, you must do what? You must deny yourself, pick up your cross, not just once, not just when you said the sinner's prayer, not just when you got baptized, but pick up your cross daily and follow me. He says, you get to participate in that. And if you learn to build the call of God in the midst of your responsibilities. First be identified in him to have that freedom that you're not held bound by the things other people are. And then through that identity, come into his call, which is to glorify him and make him known. He says you get to, yes, die first, but then also participate in the power of his resurrection. Isn't that what sociologists are finding anyway? That even people who don't know God, they find greater happiness by giving rather than only taking or receiving. Isn't that what he said? It's more blessed to give than to receive, but it takes some sacrifice and dying first, all by faith. This is the daily walk that God's calling us into. And it looks different wherever you find yourself or who you're surra- with whom you're surrounded by. Your family members, your friends, your co workers. He says, I've got a call for you. And Paul's saying, I want, I, listen, I don't know that I've already attained all this yet. That's Paul speaking. So if Paul's saying this, the Lord knows we can say that too, right? I know that I haven't attained all that God has for me yet. But here's the good news of the gospel this is encouraging, y'all. You need to preach Philippians 3 to yourself. You need to preach to yourself, I'm forgetting what's behind. Do you know God gives you permission to do that? So often guilt just hangs, hangs us up and burdens us because we're considered and concentrating on all the mistakes that we've made, trying to identify ourselves outside of God. But this is the gospel. He said, come to the cross, be forgiven, be liberated, be set free, get a new identity and forget what's behind. Isn't that good news? He says, forget what's behind. 
All those failed relationships, all those failed ventures, all those failed opportunities where you feel like I should have taken it and I missed it. He said, leave all of those behind because of the cross. Forgetting what's behind. He commands us to forget what's behind. Forgetting what's behind. And he says, straining toward what's ahead. What does that mean? That means loving him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? Straining toward what's ahead. We strive. You hear the vocabulary in the language. That means, dirty little word, effort. (laughs) That means effort. We strive to lay hold of that for which Jesus laid hold of us. The high calling. That means that whatever you've been satisfied with in your own Christianity, you need to ask God if he's satisfied with it. Not am I satisfied with where I am in Christ, but God, do you have more for me in your high call? Big difference, right? Anybody ever been scared to ask that before? Nervous? Because he actually might respond to you? Oh yes, he will. And it's only encouraging, it's only good. He's saying, come up. How many people remember reading the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, maybe, okay, if you haven't yet, one of the great, C.S. Lewis said, a children's book that can only be read or enjoyed by children is not a good book at all. It's actually theologically good, (laughs) rich and sound. And in the last battle, they were talking about going further up and further in, right? The inexhaustible God, whatever point or plateau you feel like you've reached. Listen, this isn't some motivational speech. Like you can, you can do it, baby. Have your best life now. No! God's got a high call for you and him. Bigger, better than you've ever imagined. And it's glorifying to him. It'll cost you your life, your inconveniences, and your time. Yes, it will. You get to die in the high call of Christ. What's that? That's right. Go home and tell your mom, your dad, everybody. I get to die to live. It's just the truth. But when you do, you're liberated and you're free because you can't die twice unless you're going to the second death. That's why the St. Paul said, I die, talking to the Corinthians, I die daily, (laughs) even as I glory over you in Christ Jesus. Was he boasting? No. He wasn't boasting. He's like, I'm done with that. Got nothing to offer God. He's not impressed. I'm not going to be impressed either. He said, I die daily, even as I glory over you in Christ Jesus. He's like, I'm able to participate in his glory. Why? Because I've learned the secret of striving to his high call. It costs me my life, my time, my resources, all that. But then he's glorified, right? The Westminster Confession. To glorify God. That's where you find your peace. To glorify God. That's where you find your actual satisfaction and fulfillment after you live out the identity that you actually truly have from him being a citizen of heaven. Now, how do you do that? He says not to forsake your responsibilities, but don't be so consumed by earthly things. Now, that's what, 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 what does that mean? 
It means that we contextualize everything that we put our hands to in the context of eternity in heaven. Everything. How does this play out? How does, this, how does what I'm doing now, how, how's what, how I'm raising my kids touch heaven? How's the way that I'm treating my spouse reflect the character of God? How is it that um, when I'm in my career and industry, how am I cultivating it in such a way that God himself, the creator, would have been reflected in that which I'm doing? If you're in medicine, how is it that my hands are being utilized just as a great physician's hands would have been utilized to bring glory to him and thanks to him? You see, all of these different things. If I'm in business and industry, how is it that I can utilize this ability to generate wealth to actually be of benefit to the world that's so in, desperate, such in, in such desperate disarray and need around me? How can I do these things that glorify God? The filter becomes him. Everything that I do, it's not segmented. It's, it's whole. My citizenship is in heaven. My citizenship, that means I live out of it. I'm always showing it, right? If you get stopped, somebody asks you, why are you this way? Why is there so much joy in you? (laughs) Right? Then you've got an answer. My citizenship is in heaven. And I have my mind not just set on earthly things, the bills, but I have it set on heavenly things. And I'm looking to fulfill the high call that he has for me. Don't be like those whose end is destruction where their God is their belly. That's hard in Chicago. We're in a foodie town, right? Their God is their belly, meaning their appetites. They're just going from one pleasure to another. One pleasure to another, living for pleasure. Their God is their belly and their destiny is destruction. Their end is destruction. Their glory is in their shame. Why? Because their minds are set on earthly things. But we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And that's his ultimate aim. (laughs) Let me make it clear. That is his ultimate aim. He's a king, and he's coming to rule and reign as a king. And us growing in the identity of God and also the call of God is us growing in his lordship in our lives that we might actually serve him, not as a side item, not just as a traveling companion, but as king. And so the issue of identity and calling always goes back to, is he king in your life? Is he not just a good idea, but is he ruling and reigning? Because ultimately he's coming to do so. And when you meet him, you'll bow that knee and be liberated because he's good. Amen? All right, let's have our worship team come back. And as we go back into worship in this moment, again... This is worship, not in the sense of just going through the motions, just going through the songs and reciting them, even so that we feel good. The point is, is we want to take in that moment a survey, right? A survey of our hearts, a survey of our lives, and see 
how it aligns with that which Jesus is proclaiming to us through his word. Okay? So if you would, rise to your feet. Let's worship God, but have a moment where we're doing this with him.